Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests today are George Contos and Matthew Shum. George Contos is an artist and filmmaker in Los Angeles. We'll be talking to him about his film Decumanus, which explores the architectural evolution of the Greek city Thessaloniki. The adaptation to Greece, uh, therefore, is um, something that I'm looking at at this particular moment. I'm recording that and I'm looking at this modernization, but not as a cri- cri- not in a critical standpoint. I think that there's something interesting that happened within this chaos. Matthew Shum is a writer and curator based in Los Angeles. Shum included Contos' film Decumanus in a recent screening series at LAX Art, and we'll be talking to him about his experience as a writer and curator in Los Angeles. What I've found working as a curator is that I don't think it's an actually very well-defined job, especially in contemporary art. But what it means to be a contemporary art curator, I think, is wide open. The kind of collaborations you can have are astoundingly different in each case, depending on the personality. I find that an interesting challenge on occasion. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on k 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 p.m. Like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And there you can find out more. George Contos and Matthew Shum, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So, George, uh, you made a film... Uh, called Decumanus, and can you tell us about it? Yeah, um, I could start with the word Decumanus, which is a Latin term. Decumanus in Roman city planning is a, um, was a west, east-west uh, oriented road. Uh, it's a military road uh, in a Roman city or a military camp or a, <clears throat> a Roman colony. The Via Gnatia was uh, the first uh, Roman road that uh, the Romans built in the second century B.C., and that went through Thessaloniki, where I shot the film. Uh, the road connected Dirachium, uh, current Duras in Albania, to uh, Istanbul, and went through uh, Thessaloniki, where Thessaloniki was the second biggest um, uh, Eastern Roman Empire, uh, city of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, when I shot the film in Thessaloniki, I didn't have any uh, title or I didn't know what the film is going to be about. But at the time I was shooting it, there was an excavate like uh, the the metro. The Metro Works uh, accidentally found a whole section of that ancient road, Decumanus. And basically that's how I started uh, focusing on that as an axis of, you know, uh, reference. And then I continue working on the film. And so uh, maybe we can, we can talk about the structure of the film and the ideas in it. Um, but we'll maybe bring Matthew in a little bit and talk about... Uh, y'all's cooperation in showing it at LAX, where Matthew is a curator, correct? Yes, Yeah. currently. So how did, how did that work out? Like, and, and what, what form did it take when you, when you showed it there? Uh, I had been doing this series I called um, the Aragota Theater, and it was just a way to use a side alley at LAX in Culver City as, as an outdoor screening space. It started with... Uh, 
an artist named Ivan Aragota, who um, came to Los Angeles as a resident. He was actually at 18th Street. And he showed me this amazing piece that he had, he had made. And um, it, it took place in Colombia. And I just thought it was the sort of thing that I wanted to do with curating in L.A., just to show some things from outside of the fold. So that piece uh, that Yvonne did and then meeting with George several months later fit in with this idea of just doing something that was informal, that was outdoors, that was bringing people uh, from L.A. in contact with some things that maybe they wouldn't see elsewhere. So the piece that George had made in Greece, you know, fit right in with what I was trying to do with that series. So let's let's then talk about the film itself. Um, and from the writing that you've sent us, you, you use this phrase autobiographical fiction, which seems to make sense to me. But can you maybe break that down a little bit? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Um, sure. I, I mean, a lot of in my work, I use my my own biography, my own diary. And uh, and I. I kind of compose scenes that are contrived, that are like more fictional. So autobiographical fiction means that I'm using my biography or uh, connecting other biographies, kind of a conglomeration of biographies uh, of people I know, and that creates like a more of a fictional um, biography. Um, right. I don't know how to explain. And, no, no, I mean, that makes sense. And there's, I mean, seeing the film, which is excellent, by the way, it like it seems to me it seems like a, a biography of Thessaloniki itself, right? And you use this phrase uh, "city within a city" often, right? Yeah. right? And what what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, the city within the city is uh, the way that cities have existed inside the, the same city. So ancient cities that are like uh, underneath the modern city, and that's uh, all the trace and and all the traces that we see in all these uh, in the european cities after the after obviously after the war um and uh, like in this case in decumanus like all this new um uh, little part of us of the of the ancient city that was found underneath um that is like when you shoot that when you're like at that particular moment and you're shooting it you are you're experiencing two cities in two different levels and thessaloniki has all the, all the Byzantine la layer is like almost 20 feet under the modern layer. So that's like kind of... literally yeah, 20 feet yeah. below the ground. Right. right. So that you see the monuments and when you walk around, you see all the Byzantine churches are like on a level uh, lower of the, 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 the city level, which is extraordinary. Yeah. And so there's all... there There is the modern Thessaloniki and then there are... I mean, there's ruins and artifacts literally sticking up out of the ground. Right. Right. And yeah. that's a major part of the film. Yeah, uh, and and you look at or the film looks at uh, the way that people interact with the modern city, and with but with these ruins jutting out, and they become these like I don't know what the right phrase is. You would know better, like these focal points, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, w I was interested in the in a, in the aftermath of the modernization that that occurred in a Greek city such as Thessaloniki, which was a very eclectic city. But then in the 50s, it completely uh, changed within this industrialization. And so all the buildings took a very specific, specific form, which I talk in the film uh, called Polykatikia. Mm -hmm. It's like an apartment building in reference to the prototype of Le Corbusier. 100 years ago, the domino structure was that type of type, that typology that made modernism possible through all these countries. The adaptation to Greece 
uh, therefore is uh, something that I'm looking at at this particular moment. I'm recording that and I'm looking at this modernization, but not as a cri cri not in a critical standpoint. I think that there's something interesting that happened within this chaos. Like there, there have been uh, artifacts, as as maybe we can call them, the monuments are in between the plaza areas, the, the, the polikatikias, the buildings, the residential buildings. So all that is uh, sort of displayed in the film. It seemed to me when I first saw the, the film in a studio visit with George that there was something about how the, the domino was obviously the, the main theme that you were working with as far as what developed Thessaloniki, but that you had structured the film almost like a domino building. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. I think that I started with the domino in the first chapter because uh, I think that that's what made everything what it is in all these uh, in, in, in Europe. And, and describe that structure because it, it, yeah. in the film it, you take some time to describe that. Right. Uh, domino is like a, two words. It's domin, dom, domus and um, innovation. And that was like a, a prototype that Le Corbusier, the architect, did in... Uh, uh, almost one, yeah, 100 years ago from now, uh, to uh, create a, a, the, a very loose uh, open plan with a, um, a structure, uh, a concrete structure that could like release all the wall bearing, the, how do you call the bearing walls? Yeah, yeah, the load, the, the load, load bearing, bearing walls. walls. Right. Yeah, and uh, so it increased the, it's, it was a more flexible plan to build, um, um, you know, around it. So it's like an infill type of architecture, right? Um, and modernism, modernism, capital M, modernism, right? Like right. It, there was there was uh, <laughs> ideological motivations, right, for it, right, which were, which were three generations got mentally raped. How so? Well, that's like a Leon Creer is a, a this ur new urbanist. He uh, talks about new urbanism, and that just in quotes he he says that. Uh, He's uh, talking about the ideologies of modernism, how they actually, you know, destroyed all history reference and basically proposed these buildings. The countries like Greece took these buildings, they took this prototype, they, uh, they made their own adaptation of it, very cheap structures. Uh, so that's what we see right now. And all these three generations that they're talking about is all the generations until the 60s, where after that, postmodernism comes in place and takes a different uh, yeah. course. I'll be honest, I don't necessarily feel drawn to some of the utopian aspirations of modernism. You're in good company. The um, fetishization of these characters like, like Corbusier. What I thought was really nice about George's piece was that it showed how this utopia had just been turned into this really utilitarian type of architecture. And forgive me, but in, in a lot of ways you show how ugly it is. This is not a coffee table book. This right. isn't yeah. the uh, sort of thing that is fetishized in an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. This is actually how the world's being produced, using these ideas loosely and making these super dense, probably tough to live in neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that, what you just said, like that's when you watch the film, like you get that idea, and yet the film is, and I'm going to steal a phrase from your writing, George, you, you don't really necessarily focus on the mistakes of modernism or, you know, all the shitty stuff about modernism that we all think is shitty, um, that Matt just described. Um, 
so the film does this thing where it shows you the shitty parts of modernism, but doesn't, you know, there's not a giant finger like pointing at it, you know, is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I think that, um, I'm, I'm also focusing on the fact that first of all, I lived in those places and I kind of know how it, what it means to live in one of those boxes. But, uh, there's some also, uh, part in the film that shows that people besides the modern industrialization, uh, they adapted that new social, they adapt, they kind of claimed the new social space between what the previous city was and what the modern city is right now. And they kept living their traditional way of life. Their, their culture remained the same. That's in the third chapter, which I show, which is, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no voiceover. Uh, and just lets the camera go and travel in the city and show the people. Yeah, I think that's a nice part of the film that um, you can employ these modern structures and actually the people in Thessaloniki keep living their Mediterranean life. It doesn't actually change things. The material conditions don't necessarily get in the way of people's rituals. Not that they're living in Thessaloniki like they were in ancient Greece, but there's certainly a sense that the modern structure isn't necessarily as imposing as it was theorized to be. Mm-hmm. Plus, it actually added some vertical public space, which I think it is possible with uh, the balconies. People are like just sitting like birds, watching other people doing their activities and works during the day. So it is a it is a dense uh, place. And and in the film, forgive me if I'm remembering this wrong, but you show people who have sort of added on to or manipulated that architecture in a way, right? To, to fit something that is appropriate for their, for their lives, right? Right. I don't know how obvious this is from only the imagery. I mean, I didn't focus exactly on that, but it's, it's, uh, if you notice the buildings, you can tell that all these additions are all, you know, there's like a collage of things that are happening in a building. It might have started in the eighties. Then in the, in the nineties, they, continued working on adding stuff so you see all these buildings and there's it's like a whole puzzle it's like a it's an interesting uh, visual yeah and to be fair this isn't like a realization of modernist architecture in the way it was probably intended to be it's not like you're actually seeing the Corbusier architecture and uh, that's nice they're kind of quoting it and there's a lot of quoting in the film that you made as far as the writing and the content correct right right because in the writing, I was inspired by the architecture of the city in uh, uh, writing by Aldo Rossi about his urban theory, his kind of uh, thesis around it in 1966. And as a, like, as, a, as, a, as a postmodernist, he talks about the city in a more romantic way. He just uh, he tries to make, uh, he, he tries to talk about the, mon- the monuments and how they impact uh, the urban artifacts, how they impact that life in the city. Um, and can you talk about, I know we said initially that we, we use the phrase autobiographical fiction, but, but I wonder if, I mean, I think one of the things that this film does is it kind of wanders through different kind of genres, like in a, it's like you give yourself the liberty to do this kind of maybe slightly more didactic portion at the beginning about the domino and the architectural thing. And then this and then there's a section that to me is highly lyrical like you said that when the voiceover kind of stops and you're just kind of letting the camera travel i mean i feel like you, not that you've created a new genre but there's it it doesn't so easily fall into it's just a simple documentary 
Can you talk about what you were trying to do with that? Yeah, I was trying to experiment with uh, the editing of this film and uh, I wasn't really thinking of making a documentary. I I put it in more uh, in the context of a video essay. So in that way, I'm in 21 minutes, how can you show the city with all these kind of components, all that, all this concept that I had. Uh, so that's why I broke it into chapters and having the middle chapter being completely uh, disengaged from any narration or I mean, any voiceover made it uh, uh, kind of brings the viewer more to understand how the city flows. And that's why I wanted that to be more uh, like, I think it's more experimental that way than just kind of continuing with the voiceover. We'll return to our conversation with George Contos and Matthew Shum in a few minutes, but first, a new installment of Notes from the People. This episode, we'll be listening to a radio play by artist Dorothy Hoover titled Living in Twilight, featuring voice talent by Dorothy Hoover and Phil Lears. Find out more about Dorothy's work at dorothyhoover.com. Mrs. Rumbala, eh? Who is it? Plumber. Plumber? I didn't call for a plumber. Who is this? Have you checked the chicken? Chicken? Did you say chicken? Listen, I don't think this is very funny. Stop it. Who is this?
Yes. Mrs. Carl's? Who? Mrs. Borg's? Who is this? Flowers. Uh-huh. Flowers for whom? Plumber, ma'am. I don't need a plumber. Candy Graham. Candy Graham, my foot. I'm going to call the police. Why haven't you checked the children? Hello? It's me. I know. Who are you? You know, I'm not going to be here much longer. I know. Can you see me? Yes. I turned the lights down. I can turn them up if you like. Don't. No? You really scared me if that's what you wanted. Is that what you wanted? No. What do you want? Did you know what his last words were? Get away from me, you stupid chicken! Now let's return to our conversation with George Contos and Matthew Shum. So I thought maybe we could just start with uh, a description, or add a description rather, to the to the radio podcast here. Uh, Dick Humanus is something that I saw and I could relate to immediately because it was obvious that George had wandered around the city quite a bit. And that's something I've done in other places that are arguably comparable, uh, in particular Istanbul. Uh, very different in many ways, but familiar somehow when I saw the piece. So there's five chapters, and they, they have loose themes. And when I first saw uh, the piece, it seemed as though George was probably more involved with um, the, the diaristic aspect of it and the film. And I can appreciate that because um, in my own way, I moved through different places um, taking my own images, and then the, the photographs become this kind of diary today. I think that's a lot of what's happening with all of these pictures of people 
uh, of themselves every day. There's, there's a diaristic aspect to it. But what George was doing was trying to go back to a place that he was from, that he obviously felt connected to, and make an artwork about it and, and almost meditate on a city that had become strange to him because he's been living in the States for so long. So the, the structure was five chapters, right? and they, they all had different things to say about the city. And what I thought maybe you could talk about is the way in which the piece changed from the first studio visit we did, where I felt like you were onto something, and I thought it might be interesting to people here because of how different Thessaloniki and the Mediterranean is than our coastal lives here in, in L.A. Uh, sprawl would be one word for, for L.A. that's often brought up. The Mediterranean has other aspects to it. So maybe just talk about some of those things, how you decided to finish the film after our first studio visit. Yeah, I think that um, after after the visit, I think that um, I th I added more of the uh, added more chapters to the film. So I added more information in the first chapter uh, to be more ex uh, specific about the city. So introducing the city in the first two chapters and taking a break from the vo voiceover and uh, uh, letting the camera flow in the city with um, with all the people and their activity. Then going back to the monuments in the th in the fourth chapter and talking about the historic urban artifacts and ending at the decumanus the street that was excavated recently so um i was uh after the meeting i was influenced to just uh complete the film in these uh five chapters so what were the what were the five chapters I think, George, if we could start with the description, it might be the, the five chapters and, and what you called the five chapters. Okay. So it starts with a chapter called The Blueprint, and that talks about the domino and the influence of the prototype to architecture and to Greece. The second chapter is called The Polis, means the city in Greek. The third chapter is The Districts, and it uh, goes around the districts uh, in the city uh the fourth chapter is called the ruins and the fifth chapter is the the fifth chapter is the road so when i first saw uh it did not have a uh fourth or fifth chapter is that correct right. i kind of just seen the first two right and one thing i noticed about the second chapter is there were a lot of attractive women walking the streets of thessaloniki and I remember encouraging you to take out some of those shots and to focus more on the the energy of the city because you were getting there. But then there would be these distracting shots of attractive women walking down the street. There's this very Baudelaire That's moment funny. where he was, he was falling in love with these girls or the camera was and then the camera was following them. And, and I wanted that part of the Mediterranean to maybe be toned down a little bit, not necessarily taken out entirely. And then slowly but surely as we met uh, in consecutive studio visits, it seemed as though the writing was taking over. So suddenly there was this tension between you wandering on the street, this uh, diaristic videography of, of sorts that you had obviously made over a long period of time, many trips home, and this um, unpretentious intellectual meditation by Aldo Rossi on the city. And not Thessaloniki, but just the city in general. So there was this really nice, clearly um, postmodern sounding narrative that you were able to give 
the the scene. So it was almost as if the scenes were working as a caption to the writing at that point. And I really liked how that was all coming together. Right. Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the the attractive women on the streets. Uh, but uh, that was when I was really experimenting with how I would edit the piece. Uh, and then uh, by working on the script, the more I read and the more I was trying to tie that text to the to the film and after our meeting uh i just uh i think the film took a totally different uh, course and it just uh and i think it's not uh i think it's not pretentious as you say it's not as it's not pretentious text it's the writing is really great the yeah excerpts you chose are really great i think yeah so i chose uh things that could like really get to tie this tie them with the footage rather than tr- trying to do something that is not there um for me though it also was something that i thought other artists might be able to relate to just in terms of what happens when you're making art these days it seems as though you have to move around a lot in order to make art uh, many contemporary artists find themselves in that position perhaps more so in europe but you're also reading along the way and so it almost felt as though you were moving through the city and the text that you would have been reading while you were making the film was now finding its way in these excerpts into the footage you had taken. Right, and I think that's how uh, I want to work as an artist. I want to, especially when I'm like recording, when I'm doing more like a video work and uh, I document a city like Thessaloniki. Uh, It's true that I was reading at the same time. I didn't know where it was going. Then accidentally that happened with the metro and they found uh, that portion uh, of the ancient road. All this thing came together when I came back to LA and I put it... Uh, I put the texts with the footage and the voiceover, which my girlfriend did, and she helped uh, in a major way uh, to put this film together. Um, and yeah, and then there's a 21 minute from the 40 minute I had in my initial kind mm-hmm. of stage. Well, at first I was worried that the the writing might be overtaking the scenes, and then the way that you re-edited it, it seemed as though it really came together, and that there was something... Um, more honest about the way in which you structured it because you were clearly being influenced by these architectural writings you were reading in terms of what you were filming on the street. And th- there, was, there was something about that that I thought was um, really transparent. Right, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, when I was, I had to read that book two times to get, to really squeeze out all this information because reading uh, the Aldo Rossi book about the architecture of the city was really difficult task there's a lot of terminology that i don't i don't understand and the way that urban theories can be really an intense subject so i try to get the all the more uh romantic texts or like the more um i don't want to use the word romantic more like um uh, a text that could be as you say um easily understood for a wide audience and not for specific audience like architects or, or specific art audience. I wanted this film to be understood more um, generally. It, yeah, yeah, it does that well. What, what is um, the underlying theme of that Aldo Rossi book for people like me who are not um, informed at all about his work? Well, um, Aldo Rossi um, worked on uh, um, a very specific type of uh, of urban uh, theory that uh, that takes away the um, takes away all the functionalist 
sort of ideology that other urban theory has before him. Uh, he takes it into uh, understanding the European city uh, as a um, as a model for uh, as a with its with with its within typologies like within the idea of architecture and the essence of the city uh, and the soul of the city and and all that and he describes it in a um, in a, in in a postmodern way so uh, it, it is it is a, a it is a book about the city and the architecture of the city um, mainly what happens in his uh, theoretical work architecture of the city which was written in 1966 Aldo Rossi is trying to make an autonomous urban theory and he's trying to focus more on the individual and that's what is that's mm -hmm. the difference between previous urban theories that were focusing only on the formalities of the city in this text uh, he takes into consideration the individual the collective memory the urban artifacts and so forth so it's like a it's a really interesting text and your your own subjectivity if you will, comes through in the piece. I thought that was another nice aspect of it. There was a vulnerability to it. Right, yeah. Sometimes the editing is such an interesting way. Like there's, a intu in, there's an intuitive editing and then there's also like a very kind of pragmatic and scheduled or strategic editing. I was more intuitive in the editing. Like I was reading and I was also tying the footage together and I think that worked very well with with this film. Do you feel like living in Los Angeles has helped you appreciate Thessaloniki and where you grew up? Yes, I think that um, I hate to see myself being a tourist in my in Thessaloniki, which it's it looks like it, but uh, but not I in, not in the film. Not in the film. Okay. Uh, I'm glad. In real life, maybe. In real life, not in, yeah. not in the Well, film. it takes me a couple of weeks to, when I go back, to it's adjust the camera. to that. The camera gives yeah. you away. Right. Um, true. Uh, the Thessaloniki, uh, I was never interested in... I mean, when I, when I lived there, I wasn't... Um, and as a student in architecture, I wasn't really engaged with the history of the town. And as I lived in L.A. and I, I completed like 10 years, going back, I, I have completely different interests. And it's not a just a nostalgic thing it's more of a study of that city that is a very a type of european city that we don't have here the lack of the monuments here and the freedom of not having that history around is interesting because then i can go to europe and i can uh, kind of absorb that from a european kind of city you're listening to the people on kchung 1630 a.m i'm ben white and I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press, so go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more. And now let's return to our conversation with George Contos and Matthew Shum. So Matthew, tell us about your interests as a curator in general. Uh, well, I think, you know, curating for me is something that's interesting as a writer. And I suppose for some foolish reason, when I was younger, I decided I was a writer. And I've attempted since those days to, uh, to be a writer. Um, I don't know exactly what that means in the, in the 21st century, to be honest. There's more text than ever. 
and there's less opportunity for writers to live. Uh, I do think there's a space for writing in the art world that I find interesting and some relationship to what it means to be a critic has often been um, something I've pursued as well. And I think the best artists to me are people who can occupy some sort of critical stance and, and make their artwork a kind of critique. That said, curating became interesting to me, I think because it's ill-defined. Being an artist has many very specific meanings for people, and a lot of people have a lot of um, pretty well-defined opinions about curators. What I've found working as a curator is that it's interesting and comparable to writing because it can mean any number of things. I don't think it's an actually very well-defined job, especially in contemporary art. If you're talking about collections or a more art historical type of curating, this is, this is somewhat different. It, it has a tradition. But what it means to be a contemporary art curator, I think, is wide open. The kind of collaborations you can have are really uh, astoundingly different in each case, depending on the personality. And so I find that an interesting challenge on occasion, as a writer, again. And so what, I mean, then describe to us your, your work as a writer. Well, as far as it relates to curating, I think a lot of times you meet with people and you have a studio visit and it's this sometimes uh, forced relationship between the curator, whatever they do, they organize, and, and the producer, the artist. I think when you can have an interesting collaboration, there is a real need for both people um, to do their work. As, as a curator who identifies as a writer, I think for me it's about finding a few ideas that the artist seems attracted to, that they uh, seem to find running through the work, and then campaigning for those ideas. It's just kind of like a long campaign where you take those ideas and you do your best to make sure that those ideas are, are realized. So you can do that with the writing, and you can certainly do that in the space when you're installing something to try and privilege those ideas. But it's a matter of taking those ideas and pushing them through and trying to make them a part of reality. Because a lot of times the things that are supposed to be uh, inside of an installation or an artwork are hard to point to when you're there. You couldn't draw it out of the painting. You couldn't necessarily draw it out of the, the video, whatever the medium is. So I think as a curator, if you're doing your job, you're finding a way to make those ideas something that benefits the artist and you know, the, the installation, the exhibition. What you're describing to me sounds like the work of a good editor. Oh, yeah. I think, I think uh, you know, I've been working at LAX, and if there's, there's one thing I've learned from the, the director there, Laurie Furstenberg, it's certainly the idea that curating is a kind of editing. And uh, so for me, that made a lot of sense because I was, before I worked at um, LAX, you know, working as an editor at a magazine in Milan, Good old flash art, the the first international art magazine in Europe, and uh, I think that a lot of what you can do as an editor is curatorial, and there's a lot of perversions of curating today that you see on the internet. But I, I really think that curating does describe very well what it's like to live in the 21st century. So a lot of what people do 
is they curate their interests. You know, this happens on social media a lot, but you're not really asked to produce things, even as an artist in many situations. You're asked to show people what you consume. This, this has a lot of different strains. You can go back to found art or the ready-made, but it's something in the 21st century that I think we're going to have to get used to, that in order to get attention for what you're doing, whether you're a writer, artist, or curator, you're going to have to tell people what you consume, and they're going to have to know what you consume in order to understand who you are. As a, as a human being, let alone a, a creative individual. And how do you think it's going in, uh, in Los Angeles and in the world? Like, are, are people doing that sort of thing that you're describing, or are they failing, and how are they failing, or succeeding? Yeah, that's a good question. LA is really interesting because it feels like hope springs eternal here. There's always something interesting around the corner, and it's, it's true if you compare it to... New York and the problems of, of New York are, I think, pretty well defined, but it's, it's a more hierarchical environment. I think here it is more lateral and there's more space to do new things. That said, it does seem to me that LA is held back sometimes by its, its um, provincial politics. There's a set of people and there's, there's a set of um, entrenched interests that seem to keep the conversation about LA rather provincial I you know that's that's how it seems to me as someone who isn't from here and who likes living here and likes working here that sometimes there there could be uh, new things that pop up but it's it's just not happening yet so I found that uh, what you were saying about the provincialism in Los Angeles I feel like um a lot of that is because of the kind of mythological ideas around what L.A. is. Sure. Is uh, those ideas around what L.A. is are constantly like rehashed. Um, so so you see certain kinds of like the psychedelic culture from like uh, the 60s or 70s coming back and those interests coming back. Uh, and I feel like people come into this city with their ideas of what it is and with their ideas of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, by coming here, the the it is always going to be the city where you reinvent yourself, um, and continue to reinvent yourself. But I f- I find sometimes that those pro- the provinciality of LA is partially because of its kind of mythological nature, or I mean, mythological isn't even like the right the mass mm-hmm. media kind of uh, promotion of LA as a place. Well, let's like be keeps clear. Us, yeah, I think yeah. that that I guess the mythology you're talking about. The problem isn't that LA is more provincial than other places. It's really not. You know, I grew up in the Twin Cities, and obviously Minneapolis is a much more provincial place than Los Angeles. The problem is that it's a huge city, and it doesn't need to be as provincial as it is. Yes, and maybe some of the mythology that you're alluding to is um, holding it back. I'm I'm really I'm not sure. I. I don't really have a lot of complaints about L.A., but it does seem sometimes like the art world could be bigger than it is, and it's certainly smaller than people outside of L.A. perceive it to be. I find that to be true as well. Indeed. So, I mean, is it a? It, could you point to a specific, um, you know, set set of problems that that people? I'm, I'm asking you to fix fix it. Fix okay. LA's provincialism. Now. Or, <laughs> like, right well, now. Well, maybe we can bring George back into this. I think for me, I had this somewhat um, problematic idea that when I started working at LAX Art, I was going to try and bring in a somewhat more international program. And I think since then, I've backed away from that kind of idea. But nonetheless, there needs to be 
a bridge between Europe and LA. They have it in France to a degree, but there is not the same sort of uh, cultural exchange between uh, any part of the world, whether it's the Pacific Rim or Europe or even uh, you know South America or even Mexico at this point. Yeah, I was between gonna say, Mexico, LA, there, we have no excuse. And there's some people doing some good work uh, to, to link LA and Mexico, but we're, we're neighbors and that's, it's yeah. not happening as much as it should be happening. There, there were even, you know, just keeping a, a North American context, there was even a point where Vancouver, where I did my undergrad, mm-hmm. was more connected to Los Angeles. So I think there, there's um, a, a tendency in our age as things become supposedly more global for these micro-nationalisms to emerge. And L.A., I think, in a lot of ways, is suffering from a certain kind of micro-national attitude. I think that's a really good diagnosis. Yeah. And I don't, I don't buy into it, and I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I think the myths that surround L.A. are always kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, but if, you, if you're someone as smart as, say, Tom Anderson, and you can make something like uh, L.A. Plays itself, there's a lot of things to critique within that mythology. I never feel like I have the the kind of place to say what is or isn't true about all of that mythological L.A. stuff. Mm. I'm, I'm really interested in the sort of um, outsiderness it provides, you know, that it's, it's problematic. It's not more connected to the world, but there is something nice about being close to the desert in particular. That's the ocean I look to when I'm right. here. Nice. And so, George, do you, do you find that to be true? And then and how do how does the art community in Greece deal with that sort of thing? Like, is there a micronationalism going on there as well? There is, I think. Uh, I can't talk about the art uh, community in Greece much since I've been uh, away from Greece and I was an architect when I left Greece and I wasn't much engaged with that. Uh, I, th- I can talk about Mexico and I think that Mexico has a more international scene then uh, it feels like there's it's a smaller scene, but it's it feels more international than LA. Whenever I'm uh, going back to Mexico City, because I have friends, artist friends, and curators live there, um, I I always bump into all these Europeans and this whole European work, and um, I'm hoping that this will happen here too. I think France is has a whole colony coming in. Like uh, these days, they have uh, so many artists and. There's so many programs around French art um, here in LA. Here in LA, yeah. Which more that, proof that the EU is not working? Yeah. Why aren't they going to <laughs> Berlin? You want to talk about micronationalism? Berlin yeah, yeah. had the same problem. Right. There's a similar type of hype being built around LA right now, for better or, or for worse. And and if you spend time in Berlin, it's a great place. There's a great deal of knowledge production and a lot of really smart people, but a lot of limits if you want to actually make a living there. Maybe LA has some similar problems in terms of it. I hear it talked about in a similar way. It's, yeah. uh, you know, you see in the last few years, like a lot of people around America, you know, moving from uh, San Francisco or New York to LA because it's quote cheaper and you can eke out a living here. And Berlin was the same thing. I mean, I would always hear the stories of like, you know, I'm living in London and working on this novel, but I just have to work so much. So I'm just going to move to Berlin. Yeah. And still not write that novel, but, you know, have more fun. Yeah, and live in an apartment for 200 euros a month. Yeah, that kind of thing. Heat it with uh, bricks of coal. (laughs) That's real. 
I, I think I want to ask the hosts a question. Okay. Oh, boy. So you, <laughs> you asked me to talk about LA. You guys know a lot more about it. You meet more people, I imagine. And I wonder if you feel like there is a change around the corner in LA. Is it, is it going to continue to grow? Is it going to... I hope so. I mean, it, and I mean, the thing I see, the majority of the art world that I see is small artist-run spaces. And it's a thing that a lot of the guests on this show, we, we end up talking about it quite a bit. Can because, I put you on the spot and ask you to name a few that you think are worth sure, mentioning? Sure, absolutely. Uh, uh, and I name these all the time, but uh, Elephant, uh, uh, Monta Vista Projects, uh, South of Sunset. Uh, who else? Uh, uh, Eastside International. Eastside International. Weekend Gallery would Weekend. have been on that list until oh, they closed. R.I.P. Um, yeah. Who else do we got? There's, there's Commonwealth and Council, which is a, you know, is a different, different kind of thing entirely, but I've, Actually, I mean, it's hard because I, I would kind of include them in that list, but Young has done so much work to kind of claim a space for Commonwealth and Council. That's Young Chung. For Young Chung, Chung, which, yeah. you know, that's that's a great space. But mm-hmm. uh, And then you have... Um, Chin's Push, which is yeah. kind of a newer a newer jam and just, uh, I would say, like exemplary of a weird... And I say weird because it's in a house. Uh, you know, it looks like a house that people j- like just moved out of, mm-hmm. literally. And they had uh, Michael Decker and Aaron Wrinkle. Yeah, just had a show there, and Christian Cummings had a show there. And it's a uh, you know, and, it's and not really a white the, cube. It's and beautiful. really the list could go on. There's mm-hmm. human resources. There's right. actual size. There's, you know, there's so many places. But I think that there that that is a wonderful thing about Los Angeles. That will I think continue for quite a while. Like you know, a new artist-run space opening every week. I think that, like you asked, is it is there a change around the corner? There definitely is. There's like. Hauserworth and Schimmel about to open. Sure. There's also yeah. all the other mega galleries. Basically, we've entered the time in Los Angeles of the mega gallery, and Blum and Post started that. And then you had like uh, Francois and Night Gallery take over the spaces. You got 356 right. Mission. Yeah. And uh, you, I, I hear the question floated all the time, like, are we having an art show or a party? And I mean, that's we're having a party and an art show, and that's like kind of the... LA vibe that I think that people pull away from LA that it's just like oh it's a party so you know we're gonna buy tons of beer and drinks and invite a lot of people and have a big party and there's some art there and that's great yeah um but you know I think the change that may be coming is that is a change that's already kind of been happening is as we've talked about on this show before is this kind of it's basically a reflection of the larger economy where the kind of middle tier of galleries like the step beyond the artist run space it seems that those middle tiers barely exist. And the only thing that's replacing uh, it yeah. are the, like the super galleries and, uh, or, or seven people with a studio space that open up an exhibition space inside of their, their building. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's usually, it, it seems like it's one of those two things, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, it, yeah. and as we've discussed again on the show, it's, that's, very beautiful in this way like it creates these little communities and these mm-hmm. small spaces and i can't really speak to the you know to the high-end galleries like it's cool i want to you know i want to go see some baldessari stuff you know sometimes and that mm-hmm. those things aren't going to be at south of sunset mm-hmm. you know so it's nice to have them but I, I don't i don't know where they're going and like what what they're thinking well, yeah, let's be clear. If you're talking about provincialism, which is a word that gets thrown around in every art scene, I think yeah. what you're ultimately talking about is a repetition 
that gets a bit old. Yes. There's there's a lot of complaints in New York right now about zombie formalism. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Different types of that. painting that, um, you know, for whatever reason, seems to um, resemble abstract expressionism from the 50s. So I think you see plenty of uh, repeat examples of that in Los Angeles right now. So that's that's what we're talking about to some degree with, with provincialism is that there's a set of interests coming in from outside of LA and people are um, using those interests to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And those are the politics. And I just feel like you meet a lot of really smart people who should be driving the debate and the agenda. And I don't know, they're not. They're not given the same space as Paul McCarthy and John Baltasari. Sure. Yeah. And of course, they help build the scene here. And, uh, you can't take anything away from them. But there, there isn't a sense of things being made in a critical fashion on a regular basis in L.A. right now. And I hope that's what changes. Well, Matthew Shum and George Contos, thank you for joining us on The Pizza. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. Our theme music is Auk Fifth by Lewis Kelly. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. We're going to go out with a song from the duo Ted Burns and Nicholas Dio off their cassette on Collegia Records titled One. You can find out more about Ted's music at tedburnsdrums.com. The track is called A Part.